are we? It's Thursday. It's the first week of... Um, where are we? First week of March. And I'm down in Bristol to talk to Dr. Faye Clark about lemurs and research into the cognitive behaviour of large-brained mammals, which would be fascinating. Anyway, I'm listening to some lounge jazz as I have breakfast in my hotel. And a beautiful young deer has just walked into the garden of the grounds of the house. Um, I don't know what species it is, I won't lie, but it's quite small, so it may well be a monkjack, but I'm surprised to see monkjacks roaming wild around here in Bristol. But it's lots of green woodland, perfect place for Bristol Zoo to have opened their wild place, which is their new outdoor safari park-like zoo environment, of which we're about to hear about more. Anyway, this is Trees A Crowd. I'm David Oakes, and uh, we're about to talk to Dr. Faye Clark. Thank you for listening. Here we go. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From an actor or shepherd, scared by a tractor or leopard, I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we're in Bristol, home to the world's fifth oldest zoo, but we've come to their sister site, the Wild Place Project, nestled not far from the English side of the Severn River. We're here to meet animal welfare scientist Dr Faye Clark. Faye specialises in the assessment and enhancement of captive animal welfare, and prior to joining Bristol Zoo in 2013, worked with the gorillas at London Zoo, dolphins in Hawaii, and baboons in Namibia. Faye, hello, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. Hello. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you. We're, we're in a tent. We are. A very sweaty tent. <laughs> a very sweaty tent. We're sort of, we're right next to the baboon enclosure. We are, yes. So this is a, a, a themed area. So this is part of our Gelada exhibit, which is meant to simulate the uh, meadows of Ethiopia. Right, so, in, right next to the M5 in Bristol. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So you might hear the, the faint lull of the M5 in the background. <laughs> Uh, hypnotically sort of soothing the baboons as they roam along. Um, You you say gelada, is that the... Gelada baboons, yes. What's special about a gelada baboon? Gelada baboons, I don't know if you noticed when we just walked past just now, but they have what we call a bleeding heart, which is an area of skin on their chest that has no fur on there. Um, And it's sort of used as a display, so the males display to each other. And the baboon with the reddest heart will win the heart of the ladies. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that's just an evolutionary development. Yes. Like the mandrills with their funny faces. and Which is the one with the really bright red behind. The bright red behind, that would be a Sulawesi macaque. There you go. Mm. God, these wonderful creatures with their mating rituals. Yeah. So on on your website, you describe yourself, and I quote... As a zoo geek. A zoo geek, You say that zoos are fascinating places, incredibly important to the future survival of hundreds of species, and a unique unique training site for the next generation of conservation scientists. And as the the tent blows in the wind, trying (laughs) to block out what I'm saying, um, what is it about zoos that have drawn you in so much? Yeah, um, just a curiosity, I think, of animals when they're not in their natural habitat and what that looks like and what that does how that changes the brain, how that changes their behaviour, even the way that they look can be very different from the wild versus captivity. 
So I always say that I'm a zoo geek, I support zoos, but I am still critical of zoos. Sure. So my sort of life's mission, I guess, is to say, hey, we've got zoos, they're extremely important. So instead of trying to battle against zoos, I think we need them and we may as well improve animal welfare as much as we possibly can. Amazing. So that's where you are now in terms of your interest in zoos. How does this start? It, uh, where were yeah, you as a child? How did um, you grow up? What was it, what was it about? Zoos I would then? say it actually started outside a zoo. So I grew up just outside Birmingham, so a big city. Didn't really have amazing access to wildlife and nature, but uh, there was a, a man who used to come to our school called the Animal Man. Okay. And he would visit once a year. Um, I think he was associated with maybe Twycross or Dudley Zoo. They were sort of my nearest zoos growing sure. up. And once a year, he would go to a school and bring animals from a zoo to the classroom. So he would bring these amazing big wooden boxes and you had no idea what was going to be in there. (laughs) So it could be like a gigantic owl or a snake or some sort of rodent. And it was just so exciting. And I remember once a year, every time he used to come, I'd be like the biggest geek of all. I would be like, what is in the box? (laughs) Um, and then we'd just spend the whole the rest of the day just fantasizing about these animals and drawing them and would find it really difficult to sort of get back into the real world. Sure. Um, and then I guess then when I was a little bit older, my dad moved to the States. I lived in the States for a little bit of time. And it was actually having the experience of lots of zoos in lots of different places. Uh-huh. So not just zoos in the UK, but zoos in the Middle East, zoos in the US, and seeing the contrast between good zoos and bad zoos. Back then you could tell that already? Yes, I think you can. How I old think, were you when you were in America? Uh, about seven or eight. Okay. So I think even... So the, the Dudley Zoo boxes were in your very early years? Yes. But they made that big an imprint? They did, yeah. And I think even at that age I could be critical and say, okay, that animal looks good to me that animal does maybe not look so good to me um and i always felt like i wanted to make things better sure but i've never been a sort of person who says oh down with zoos down with captivity i i think they're very important but i see that there are areas that can always be improved so what would you say were the things you noticed then the difference between the american the british and the the foreign zoos that you saw i think in america it's seen as more of a uh a career to to work in in a captive setting with exotic animals i think they have they invest a lot more money into it there are a lot more qualifications you can do um it's viewed as a very high up profession sure. whereas i think in this country um it just seems to be an extension of maybe working with farmed animals so we still use terms that we would refer to when we're referring to farmed animals and it's a bit more traditional okay. so it's not maybe as as modern and forward thinking does that mean that the people working with them are more relaxed in the situation? or? Yeah, maybe. I, I mentioned in the introduction that Bristol's the fifth oldest, yes. which normally means is one of the smaller zoos and more... Is that why it's sort of branched out here to the wild place now, to provide a bit more space for the animals? It is, yeah. So I think our zoo, Bristol, was established in around about 1835. Oh, wow. And, yeah, really, really close to when London Zoo was established, which was around about 1827, I think. Uh, you might want to fact-check me on that later. I'm not very good we'll with dates. We'll put an addendum at the end of the yeah. podcast saying that you were factually incorrect. Or um, correct. But it it's... sounded like Alan Partridge just said, <laughs> I really shouldn't do that. 
it's it's a, a classic old zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so very much like London Zoo and Vienna Zoo and um, Berlin Central Geogarten Park. Zoo. Yes, yeah. exactly. So they're all very similar, and actually they had the same architects working in them all. Oh, wow. um, so it, th- these zoos were actually set up as gardens more than zoos to begin with. So places where you could wander around and be in manicured landscapes. And back in those days, zoos were menageries. They were just collections of as many species as you could possibly get and cram into one area. And animals were very much there to be looked at and admired and seen as pieces of art, I guess. Sure. Well, um, nobody had seen them before. I think if you no. couldn't travel, there's no way you would have ever seen them. Exactly. Like. So it was a spectacle. People would come to, to these old Victorian zoos and be frightened by the animals, they'd be shocked. You know, sometimes they would think that's not real, that's someone dressed up as an animal or that's a composite, that's bad taxidermy. Mm. Um, And actually, I've heard uh, there's a myth. I don't know if this is true either, but um, London Zoo back back in the Victorian times would actually sell people sticks to poke the animals with. Wow. So poking sticks to sort of, what's that curious beast? I'm going to poke it. In in yesterday's interview with Steve Etches... um, the Victorians got a bad name in terms of what they did in the Industrial Revolution. It seems that the Victorians are always going to get a pretty bum deal in this podcast. Yes, they are. But then, being a zoo geek, I, I love the, the architecture from that time. I think it's beautiful. I don't think it's beautiful to put animals in, no. for sure. But some of the really ornate uh, metal designs that you get on the cages, and they used to go for very sort of 360 view enclosures that you could walk all the way around. Sure. And there's some beautiful examples of that at London Zoo still which are listed so you can't ever knock them down. Funnily enough that's something that I think zoos are doing now after years of trying to have front on sort of large enclosures for the animals we're now going back into more wide habitat that you can circumnavigate. Yes so after just bigger than the big yeah our views of how we want zoos to look and what enclosures we want to use there are definite fashions in that. Mm-hmm. My favourite one that I love in, in terms of architecture is uh, sort of postmodern zoo architecture. So lots of lumps of concrete. Look, they look like big car parks, just mm-hmm. big, yeah, big lumps of concrete that are actually well, they're grotesque. <laughs> the animals should not be in those. But sure. in terms of uh, put, you know, going and having a look at the architecture, that's really great. But that just shows you now we wouldn't think ever in a million years that that would be suitable to put animals in and just like you say now we're going towards just like here at wild place where we're taking literal meadows ancient woodland and putting animals in there and not really having buildings Mm -hmm. and things sort of built with bricks well if you go back further london zoo was originally housed in the tower of london yes it was um i read an article saying how a lion and a polar bear were kept in the same enclosure and unsurprisingly didn't survive the night. No. I mean, our understanding of animals and therefore zookeeping has grown immensely. It has. So, yeah, back in those days, people would go on expeditions, on boats, collect animals, bring them back, and if they actually made the voyage back to the UK, then you could house them if, Mm. maybe for a matter of months years a year i guess if you were lucky um but there were no captive breeding programs things were not surviving there was just a constant 
input of animals coming off ships and they would be kept for a little bit, poked with some sticks and yeah, then... Well, quite. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking about pangolins the other day and one of the things that's been interesting about them is working out how to feed them in captivity. Mm. Just working out what animals eat is hard. I mean, it turns out that lions eat polar bears as well. But that's, that's by the by. Um, have you ever come across the Victorian naturalist and gastronomist, I guess, Frank Buckland? Oh, that rings a bell. Is he the guy who ate one of everything? Yeah. That's, oh, yes. That's Frank. He's, he's sort of someone who's fascinated me almost perversely over the years. Yeah. He, he knew more about animals than most people, but also insisted that he had to get to know av- every aspect of them and so would consume yeah. bits of them. I don't really see how that helps us scientifically no. to know how different things taste, but okay, each to their own. Each to their own. The, he was useful to London Zoo because... He, be- he was this eccentric. He used to go down to the docks and sort of yeah. tr- get first access to these rare animals that were turning up in London um, and would get calls from these strange people. And he, would, he was just known as someone who'd pay more for them because he really wanted to eat them all. So therefore, <laughs> London Zoo then got in- in- interested with him because if there was one that he'd already tried, they would then get the free one before it was put on the dinner plate. Right. Um, anyway, so going back to you, moving away from eating animals, yes. um, you're in America at the age of seven. Yes. And what journey does it take you on from from a child to now a doctor in zoology? Well, one of the things that you can see in America that you can't see here in the UK are captive cetaceans. So cetaceans being whales, dolphins and porpoises. Mm -hmm. So we haven't had captive cetaceans in the UK since... I don't know, maybe the early 90s, I think there was a place... Oh, Windsor Safari Park, which is now Legoland, Windsor. Uh-huh. Uh, they used to have a killer whale there. Okay. But I, um, interestingly, it's not actually illegal to have whales and dolphins in captivity. It's just sort of frowned upon. So sure. again, that shows this idea of people's perceptions and fashions changing um, over time. Um, you specialise, obviously, in large brain mammals, so I guess that's I really important to get access to cetaceans. Yes, So, again, one of the things that I was interested in, just seeing them as a child, seeing them in zoos and aquariums, um, thinking very critically about cetaceans in captivity, knowing, even as a a small child, that maybe things could be better. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think even kids can be discerning about, you know, ethical issues and things like that. Um, So, skip forward 10 years from when I was a kid, um, at the age of, I think I was 17 or 18, uh, went through a bit of a rebellious period and decided to move to Hawaii. Um, As you do. When I was a rebel, I thought about <laughs> moving to Hawaii. The difference between you and I is I just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, I was left some money in a will. Um, so I had a relative who died and they uh, left me a bit of money. So I used the money to go back to the States and I ended up working at um, a laboratory. When I say laboratory, that sounds bad. Um, it was an outdoor laboratory where dolphins were living um Mm -hmm. and it was a place where they were studying their cognition so their intelligence and their communication so i worked there for a little bit uh went back to the uk then went back worked for a little bit more and then after doing that that's when i went to do my um undergraduate degrees so you were very much someone who had work experience before going to study academically i've i want to ask this i would, would know when to ask it have you ever come across Margaret Howell Lovett? No. She was an American scientist-ish who did loads of research with dolphins and about mm. trying to work out how intelligent they were. Oh, 
Is this about the dolphin Peter? Yeah. Yes. He proved that dolphins were so... This is a bottlenose dolphin. Yes. That they were so incredibly intelligent. They were basically trying to make dolphins talk using their blowhole. Yes, that's and right. And Peter was forming words really well. And then stopped one day. But Margaret Howell Lovett discovered that if she sexually gratified Peter the dolphin, he would start talking again. That's right. Yeah. I mean... Can you remember what decade this was? Was it the... I think it's 70s. 70s? It sounds like the 70s, doesn't it? I think um, it's when they were using LSD on porpoises as well to yes, see what effect that might have. It was that's all right. So there was a, there was a whole period of um, research in the 70s on dolphins where there were a lot of quite reputable scientists. At the time, they didn't stay that way. Mm-hmm. They sure lost their reputation afterwards. But a lot of them believed that dolphins are extraterrestrials just because they are so different yeah. to other things that we find on the planet in terms of their communication skills, their cognition, everything, how well, similar they are to us, yet how different they are. Douglas Adams jumped on that and said that if the world was to be destroyed, all the porpoises and dolphins would leave the planet. Yes, I quoted him at the on the first page of my PhD thesis. <laughs> Wonderful. What, what yeah. was the quote? It was the so long and thanks for all the fish. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, so um, a lot of that research involved bringing uh, dolphins into captivity and actually, same as the Victorian times, um, even then they they weren't able to house them for very long, couldn't really figure out the breeding. So a lot of dolphins were coming in from places like Florida, places that have very shallow seas, swamps that you can easily get a boat into and bring them into captivity. experiments to try and see if we can use dolphins to communicate with aliens um trying to work out if dolphins are in fact aliens that were sent to spy on us all um all sorts of really wacky stuff and a lot of that research was fueled by lsd there you go both for the dolphins and the humans i imagine um so you did your bachelor degree in southampton your first master's in london your second in cambridge and your phd back in london that's right yeah that's a hell of a lot of further education it is I'm definitely an academic, I would say, yeah, definitely a geek when it comes to learning. Learn something, then go into work, and then want to learn some more to come back out of work. So I found myself flip-flopping between working in zoos and doing degrees. So you started doing a veterinary course? It was a veterinary master's, so it's a course that the Royal Veterinary College do. Um, and that was in wild animal biology. Wild animal biology, yeah. What does that really entail? Oh, that entails a lot of really cool practical stuff, like blow darts and uh, learning how to wrangle swans and <laughs> drive tractors and all of that brilliant stuff. <laughs> um, but also sort of um, academically speaking, learning about disease and learning that disease can be both physical, so, you know don't feel well you've Mm -hmm. got aches and pains you've got tumor something like that but also psychological health so learning that animals can feel bad uh, just like we feel bad and that can be on a daily basis an hourly basis a monthly basis Mm -hmm. so that was really a really good in into the sort of world of animal welfare there's that wonderful jeremy bentham quote about it's not whether a uh, an animal can think or, or I can't remember exactly but it's whether an animal can suffer Yes, um, and I think that's never really been in debate since he raised that mm-hmm. back in the 18 something sounds about right I don't yep. know 
Um, so during your time studying, I mean, you were always refining, I guess, where you wanted to end up. Like, how did that? How did you know what it was you wanted to focus upon? Um, again, I think ever since I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to work in zoos. And mm-hmm. so I guess my mum would be like, oh, a zookeeper? And I was like, no, I was want to... Was she in wildlife as well? Or? No, my mum and dad are accountants. Great. Yeah, so nothing, nothing related accountants. at all. They do. And I have very good accounting skills because <laughs> of that. Uh, but I knew I didn't want to be an accountant. Um, but I also knew I didn't want to be a zookeeper and I didn't want to be a vet. And that's one of my bugbears is when people say, oh, did you want to be a vet? Mm-hmm. And you couldn't, so you have to be a zoologist. And it's like, actually, no, I've always wanted to study animals and how they work, but not necessarily as a vet, as something else. So my particular interest in animals is in their brains and how their brains work and specifically how their brains change when you change their environments. And sure. I guess when you, when you have them under human care in a zoo in a sanctuary uh, compared to what their brains would be doing in the wild so your phd subject was colon um cognitive enrichment for um large-brained mammals so i chose um chimpanzees and dolphins as my model species there and how much field work did that entail uh, that involved another six months in the States, which was nice. Back in Hawaii? or No. So I was working in a place called Vallejo. Have you heard of that? I have not. No. So the nearest place that anybody's ever heard of would be San Francisco, but that's quite a few miles, uh, quite a few hours away, I guess. Okay. Um, so it's um, it was a facility that's a theme park that happens to have dolphins. So, again, very, sort of very traditional way of keeping dolphins in, in American mm-hmm. situations. Um, and Is it, it still there? It's still there. Because yeah. Blackfish, the documentary I know, has had a... I mean, this is a research space rather than a tourist space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has, has it struggled since that came out? Well, so the facility that I worked at, they did, in fact, have a killer whale uh-huh. who... Prob- I mean, blackfish, I think, would have something to do with the fact that that killer whale was then moved to SeaWorld, actually. Sure. And um, they decided to, to stop housing killer whales at that particular facility I was sure. working at. So it's had a massive impact. Blackfish has had a massive impact on the housing of large cetaceans, so killer whales. But I wouldn't say it's had a massive impact on the smaller cetaceans, the okay. porpoises and the dolphins. Do Whether you think that's it to come. Um... I don't personally like Blackfish. I think it. I would call it a mockumentary rather than a documentary. Um, it's very emotive, and I think if you know the field and you know that particular taxa, you know that uh, they've stitched together a lot of things that aren't necessarily true um, to play on people's emotions and mm-hmm. to pull on people's heartstrings. Um, so I don't think that's particularly honest the way the way it came out. Whether that was intentional or that's just how it got produced, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, having but, spoken to a few documentary makers recently, you do have to construct a narrative. Mm-hmm. It is when that narrative starts to become more important than the conservationist message that you then get into a sticky wicket. Yes. And I suppose as a scientist, I don't want to see emotional pleas. I want to see data. I want mm. to see numbers. But I have to appreciate that most people out there are not scientists. So it's got, it's got to be emotive. It's got to, you know, 
pull on people's heartstrings to a certain extent. I just think the balance might have been off slightly. Do you think there is uh, a pull and push link to to research with animals? You cannot get data without being invasive to a certain extent. I mean, we need to find out what we're doing to these creatures, mm-hmm. but at what cost? I mean, that must be... In the same way that even people make risk assessments on building sites, this must be what you do before you ever think about going out into the wild. Yeah. Well, I think it was... Blackfish was useful because what happened was legislation started to change. Mm-hmm. I think there was then the retrospective where people were like... I, th- I think the US government sort of uh, jumped and reacted very quickly and then legislation was brought into place, but it was state by state. Sure. Um, saying, oh, you can't breed cetaceans anymore. That's the main thing, that no one's ever said you can't have them, just you can't breed from them. So the idea is that it's going to wind down. Um, And then a few years after putting that legislation into place, people were like, well, actually, let's do some science and let's look to see if their welfare is, in fact, compromised. So it's taken a couple of years to actually start but the ball has definitely started to to roll and it's snowballing now and more and more people are getting interested in studying cetacean welfare their behavior and yeah questioning should they be you know under human care or not and i think that's a really important question to be asking and you know just having a conversation about it personally me um i feel like i can't be part of that um dialogue I'm the sort of person that can design the experiments, collect the data, crunch the data and say, hey, well, this is what the data shows. But I don't really want to get into the whole ethical argument one way or the other. So what kind of uh, exercises, games were you creating for the cetaceans during that six month period? Uh, So this is a bit wacky, but I was creating... It doesn't involve LSD, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, big, Big underwater mazes for the dolphins and also for the chimpanzees so something that was a sort of analogous i guess um so when i'm presuming I s- the chimpanzees mazes weren't underwater though no they weren't <laughs> it's, it's always an option though <laughs> no so when i say un- big underwater mazes people always say what like the krypton factor like the crystal maze underwater uh-huh. like a big obstacle course but actually no um far more boring than that i guess um mazes that were created out of plumbing pipes that you can fit together to create something really quite complex and then you can put that into the enclosure for a little bit of time maybe an hour um let them solve the puzzle which would be to move an object from the top of the maze to the bottom and then you can take it out like those small ball bearing national trust gift toys used to get the the plastic if you can tell me what those are called i will love you forever because i always in my talks i'm like you know that thing that goes like this and i'm moving my arms away Yeah. yeah i don't actually know what those things like what the proper word is does anyone know what the proper word please is? write in uh, yes. the email address is david at treesacrowd.fm thank you um so were they solving these puzzles quickly yes and within the first 20 seconds of the first trial and then i was like oh great well that was a waste of time wasn't it um but interestingly after the first trial they just kept creating almost their own challenges out of the same object so instead of so using they were playing. yes so instead of using their rostrums or their beaks snouts noses mm-hmm. um what they then decided to do was to move the device itself rather than moving the ball mm-hmm. within the device so again more like a sort of arcade 
situation where you're moving a platform, I guess, okay. and the ball's sort of tilting. Um, and then they did a really clever thing where they actually swam away from the device, turned their back to it, and then used their uh, back flippers to propel some water with such force that it then moved the ball. So it was this situation where it was like, okay, we did that thing that you developed, you idiot. Yeah. Now we're going to keep using it in our own ways, and they were creating their own challenges. So what was your conclusion? Well, I kind of knew it all along that they're just incredibly smart uh-huh. and that we're not really accommodating for that intelligence um, in a normal sort of pool that we keep them in, in in captivity. And therefore, we really need to be putting things in there more often. More um, stimulus. More stimulus, yeah. So there are so many ways that we could do that. We could go down the obstacle course route, I guess, you uh-huh. know, putting things underwater that are more physical barriers that they could swim around. Um, there are people that are interested in using uh, computer touch screen technology so they could the dolphins could touch a screen underwater or even use their echolocation to pulse on it. Mm-hmm. If you put something inside a black box and put the black box underwater the dolphins can echolocate through the black box and tell you what's in the box, which is incredible. Dolphins have x-ray vision. They do. Yes. There you go. So my main, my next question was going to be in, in a battle of cognition between chimpanzees and dolphins, which one would win, but I think I already know the answer. It's the dolphins. It's definitely the dolphins. And just to clear up a myth about dolphins being nice, they are not nice. They are... <laughs> They are cruel, they are scheming, they're Machiavellian, they're just incredible at how they strategize. Um, are they nicer or nastier than human beings? Oh. To drag you I into think ethics. For we're a the worst, aren't we? We're the absolute pit. We're, mm. we're the worst. But they are pretty bad. Do you think that you were ever in a situation where a dolphin was testing you? Maybe. I mean, they they will definitely not cooperate and they will prank you as well. Um, So they're very good. They were very good at sort of chucking objects out of the pool to hit my camera so my camera would fall down. Um, When I was working in Hawaii, one of the um, professors that was sort of running the lab, he had a kidney infection and um, one of the dolphins wasn't really... um, sort of cooperating one of the experiments that he was setting up, which was, um, it was probably something like the black box test, Mm -hmm. where they do very short experiments and then the dolphins can swim off and do what they want to do for the rest of the day. But this dolphin was not interested at all. And uh, so the professor jumped into the water um, to retrieve the equipment from underwater because it gets really, really heavy when you've got something sunk down there. And the dolphin just sort of, pushed him in the kidneys, gave him a big old whack in the in the back, and it's like, how did the dolphin know that that guy had a kidney infection? Well, they can see inside black yep. boxes using their echolocation. Yep. so we are the black boxes as well that they're looking through, and they're very good at deciphering our body languages, maybe potentially our moods as well, and they can certainly play on that. Wow. So you've got your PhD. How did you set about getting your first job? Where were you based initially? Uh, Bristol, actually. So Bristol was my first job after my PhD, and um, I was their animal registrar, which means I was responsible for moving animals in and out of the zoo. Um, So what a lot of people don't know about zoos is that our animals are always moving. Mm -hmm. A zoo is um, part of a much bigger global community of zoos 
and as part of our breeding programs we're always moving animals from zoo to zoo importing and exporting so this job was really cool that I got to book plane tickets for snakes and uh, import monkeys and things like that do they Um, come on special animal planes no they come underneath your uh, normal plane your passenger plane in the hold in a temperature controlled yes they do one of the things I learned a while back was that sheeps from different regions bar in different ways Ah, so they're yeah, basically so the different dialects. languages. Yeah. When you're shipping a lemur to breed with lemurs from other places, mm. is that something you take into consideration? <laughs> I probably don't. But like, these are different. Uh, uh, they have different homes. They're different languages. They, yeah. No, we don't. Just because they're the same species doesn't mean that they are the same creatures. No, absolutely. Um, it, I think with something like a lemur, it would be more something to do with their scent that we might consider. So they're going to smell differently. So there's that to consider when we move an animal, we try and move some of its substrate with it. So mm-hmm. it's almost like a comfort blanket, I guess, because think how different it must be to a dog if you moved a dog. Just how important their sense of smell. Um, most han- animals have a much better sense of smell than we do. Sure. So we'd be thinking about it more from that point of view probably but the main thing i guess is diseases so the uh, health tests that we'll do before we move an animal are really really strict and they have to go through a quarantine period both before they leave our zoo and when they get to the new zoo before you then introduce introduce the new animals to the new enclosures Mm -hmm. do you make sure that they're going to be friends with their local inhabitants or ah Well, no, not really. So we look at their genetics and we say, are they genetically compatible? Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we'll look at their temperament. Through a blood test or through... Uh, Yes, or just through knowing who their mums and dads and grandmas and granddads are. Your certificates of family trees, etc. But interestingly, I saw a thing on the news a couple of months ago that was um, Tinder for apes, where they were actually showing orangutans, and actually they've been doing it with gorillas more recently, so um, great apes in zoos, showing them pictures of potential mates and on, a, on an iPad, of all things, and allowing them to scroll through it, as you would on Tinder, so I've heard, but I've never been on it, so I wouldn't know. And seeing like how long the apes are dwelling on the different images and if there's any sort of sign in them that might indicate they're more interested in the image of one ape versus another which is a little bit wacky but there's maybe something in there i think that sounds absolutely wonderful (laughs) um not one to use dating apps either myself (laughs) quick uh addendum there uh i i i think that's great that they get to select their own partners i think that's yeah So you were Bristol first, then where did where did life take you? Uh, still Bristol. Still Bristol. So yeah, I've been at Bristol for about six years now. So I got poached from the registrar job, the import export job, to the research department, and um, we've been sort of doing concentrated research and higher education as well at the zoo for about five years. So what's your main role now then? What do you, what is what is your day to day activity? So I have two sort of long-term research projects that I focus on at the zoo. I have one on lemurs and one on gorillas, uh, but they're both tapping into my interests in cognition and animal welfare. 
and mm. those t- how those two fields come together. So my gorilla one is called Gorilla Game Lab, where I'm developing high-tech puzzles for gorillas. So that's really good advancement for me because everything I've done up until this point has been really low tech so when I did my PhD I didn't have any money I actually started with no money at all I got my stuff for my PhD out of a skip at the uh, at the university they were having the lawn redone Uh on my university campus and uh, I saw a skip and I saw some interesting looking pipes in there and was like I'm gonna have that <laughs> yeah so I sort of then hit a brick wall with that and thought I can't do much more with pipes I need to start thinking about how I can create challenges for animals that are a little bit more so what do the gorillas get what, what are their technological challenges oh they have an amazing device that's um again it's a probably like an arcade machine um that's the easiest way to explain it but I feel like we've been very thoughtful in terms of what gorillas need they don't need an arcade game they need a challenge um, but the mechanics behind it are quite similar Um, so again it's moving a ball from the top to the bottom or a nut but the cool thing about this device is that the technology is kind of hidden in the back so what I didn't want to do was have our apes at Bristol Zoo interact with a computer directly Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a message that we particularly want to send to people that it's it's very unnatural looking yeah so we've used the technology in a way to help us understand how they're solving the problem and that's helping us learn about their cognition and as well evaluate whether the enrichment is working or not so we have technology in the device that recognizes the gorillas by their face and then it can summarize for the keepers at the end of the day oh jock our silverback male gorilla has used the device for 20 minutes today and his favorite thing to do was to pick his nose (laughs) or something like that so it's an amazing leap forward really so if people come to bristol zoo they can see the gorillas using your machine they can yes so we use it probably once every month at the moment because we're still sort of tinkering around uh prototyping but you should be able to see it in there if you're lucky amazing is that your main goal for the future or do you have any other plans that you want to start working on um i'm getting more back into conservation at the moment so my uh, lima project is looking at again can we challenge animals in captivity but can we do it in a way that's going to help their conservation so my lima boot camp project which is actually run here at wild place is looking to see if we can test the cognitive skills of lemurs whether they match up to those of wild lemurs and if they don't can we put them through some sort of boot camp process to train them up i guess to give them a life that's preparing them for the wild amazing before we get into the three final questions if someone was to give you a blank check to make oh how fe- kind of you <laughs> thank you you won the, the trees of crowd challenge the best guest of the fortnight if if you were going to hang on am i am i the only <laughs> guest of the fortnight i've been rumbled all, this, all those dolphins have rubbed off on you not not like peter the dolphin. <laughs> that was disgusting if you're giving a blank check to make phase zoo what features would your zoo have oh that's a good one have you ever played zoo tycoon I have played Zoo Tycoon. (laughs) The premise of Zoo Tycoon, as you probably know, Mm -hmm. is to build your own zoo. So it's a computer game where you don't really win. You just keep building a zoo. Much like life. We never win at life. Yeah. So um, I remember doing that ages ago and building a zoo. And I was so focused on the enrichment that my animals all died of dehydration. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
to be honest, I don't know if I'm the best person to say, here you go, have a blank check and build a zoo. Um, I don't think I have the business acumen or the sort of wider picture. Fair I just enough. love doing the experiments, so I would I would use the money to do some really cool experiments. I think. Where's the newest zoo in the world? I think it's in Dubai. So that would make sense, yeah, it? I think they had their zoo open last Easter. Oh wow! Yeah. Is there anything particularly exciting about that one? I don't know. Maybe I should go there and report back. I could Imagine. be like a field. Uh, a field reporter for you. That'd be wonderful. We'll all come out. We'll sort of <laughs> delve deep. Now that we've given you the blank check, we can't actually afford to go to Dubai <laughs> for for that for that research trip. Unfortunately, um, everyone who comes on the podcast, we ask three questions. Okay. Um, the first of which is: if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Oh wow! Where would I go for a walk? I would go to Madagascar to go and see ring-tailed lemurs in the wild and I would probably be quite depressed because I believe there's a, an outbreak of plague out there at the moment Lemur and plague. no human plague and measles or? actually so apparently um, there's a big problem with us going over there to Madagascar and giving all of our nasty germs um, and people are getting sick from, from tourism so I would tentatively creep around and hopefully not spread any germs. In a biohazard suit. Yeah, but I've never been to Madagascar. I've been working with lemurs here um, in zoos for years, um, but I think that that contrast, if I could really see lemurs in the wild, I think that would be great. Um, but the picture out there for lemurs in Madagascar is pretty dire. There I was hear. a pretty bleak documentary that David Attenborough fronted a little while back. Uh, it was his return to Madagascar for the second time, mm-hmm. him having first been there in the 60s or 70s and then going back in the 2010s and just saying that uh, tourism and human settlements have destroyed whole swathes of the planet, um, of, 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 the, of the country, and he was very visibly upset by it. I've never been. It was always on my list, but you then have to question whether or not we have the right to go to places if we've already destroyed them that badly. Yeah, and isn't it a tricky... A thought, you know, a cheeky question if you want to work in conservation, if you want to do the right thing for the planet, to get on a plane and to use all that carbon yeah. to go there, it's it's really tricky. I do travel occasionally, but not much. Um, you've got that pedal plane that you use now with a zero carbon <laughs> footprint, which is fine. I saw it parked up front of the zoo emoji. Yeah, it's good. Um, whilst we're on lemurs briefly, I remember there was a tiny little thumb-sized lemur that was oh, basically right. a keystone lemur. Right. That basically, if it, it was something like it was the only uh, animal that pollinated a certain kind of tree because mm. it could climb up where they all burnt down. I can't remember. It's very vague. Do you know more about it than that? No. no. I would guess something that small would be a mouse lemur, um, as the name would suggest. Um, but, you know, M- Madagascar has this just amazing biodiversity that you don't get anywhere else because it when it separated from mainland africa everything just carried on evolving in this special way um so you do get these crazy links that when they're gone they're gone and there's no way of reproducing that so it's somewhere we really need to be preserving question number two should we colonize the moon oh you know i spent a good deal of yesterday um, on the moon. <laughs> on the moon, yes. Um, no, I went down a Google black hole. Ever been on one of those <laughs> oh, where often. the day just goes? Um, looking at flat Earth conspiracies. So my question to you, my counter question is: Is there even a moon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I honestly can't answer that. I, I, 
I have never been there. My father wanted to go there, yeah. uh, but he hasn't been there either. So I, I, <laughs> I have yet to meet anyone who has been to the moon. Yeah. Uh, this all came about, by the way, because there's a, a new documentary on Netflix called Beyond the Curve, I've which I recommend. It, yeah. um, but I was just left with so many questions. Again, like my scientific mind just does not shut down. I have to question absolutely everything. So watching that, I was like... Well, what you know, what evidence is there for and against? You know, what what do flat earthers actually believe? And this morning waking up having had that evening to think of it, do you believe that the earth is flat or round? I'm still a round earther. Okay, good to know. <laughs> uh question number three. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Oh, a giant lemur. So there used to be these lemurs that were as big as bears or even bigger that would climb trees, which must have been a sight to behold. Massive fangs, massive claws, terrifying, freakish, yes. There's a, a sculpture of a megatherium, a giant tree sloth down in Crystal Palace oh, where I'm from. I love that place. Oh, it's, it's bonkers. It is bonkers. But everyone goes straight to the dinosaurs and they don't mm. think about the other megafauna that existed back in the day. And there were giant everythings. Um, I had the privilege to go to... It's a wildlife park, I guess, but it's a zoo of sorts called mm-hmm. Zealandia right. uh, in that Wellington. That sounds made up. <laughs> hey, well, it's the, it's the landmass that uh, New Zealand was a part of oh. back hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, but it's trying to recreate the biodiversity that was on New Zealand before 600 years ago when the yeah. first human settlements happened. But they go into the size of uh, giant flightless birds and mm. the giant eagles that were there and the giant lizards were there and the fact that there was not a single mammal on the island until 600 years ago, which is mental. Yes. Um, so there's a zoo. On your trip to Dubai, keep going and head <laughs> over to Zealandia. I will do. Faye, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Trees of Crowd. Um, if people want to find out more about you, they can find you on the internet. You can. You've got a Twitter feed, which is... Dr. Faye Clark. At Dr. Faye Clark. You've got a website, which is... Uh, it's a Weebly website, uh, Faye Clark. There you go. Um, and if people want to come down and see you test gorillas and lemurs, you're down at Bristol Zoo in the Wild Place. That's right. So my producer's just interjected and said I should have asked one more question, which is not who should have won between chimpanzees and dolphins, but who would win between dolphins and humans? Oh, dear. Well... Humans are supposed to have this thing called uh, executive functioning and it's that ability to stop yourself from going so rageful you're going to kill someone. Uh So we have that level of restraint that apparently other animals don't have. Well, it's like wild herd animals. They keep running and running and running from their prey even until their heart explodes because all they know is that if they stop, they will die as opposed to if they keep going, they may survive. Yeah, so I think a dolphin, if it had the means and the motive, it would just probably go for you. How it would kill you... I think it might stun you to death with its sort of echolocation beam right right in your weak area. <laughs> they would liquefy our weak areas. Yes. Wow. I'm now terrified of dolphins. You should be. <laughs> yeah. And that was the fantastic and charming Faye Clark. Now, one of the perks of this job is going to visit people in their place of work. So how could I visit a primatologist and not get to play with some of their furry friends? So what follows is 10 minutes of me failing to interview Faye with any sense of clarity or direction because I am being gloriously distracted by lemurs. 
and it's worth listening to alone for the sound of a lemur eating beetroot. Anyway, I'll leave you with Faye and her lemurs, and I hope you all tune in again in a fortnight. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. How many species of lemur are there in this enclosure? We have two. So we have uh, ring-tailed lemurs and mongoose lemurs as well. So the ring-tailed lemurs are quite bullyish. They're quite um, forceful, so they definitely rule this enclosure. And then the two little mongoose lemurs sort of, uh, yeah, they're less dominant, I would say. They're leaping around like they're... There's one coming right oh, at you amazing. at the moment. OK, that, that's right next to my head. Hey, buddy. How are you doing? We've got a little squeak into the microphone I there. I don't know if you notice their teeth. They have these little... Uh, their fangs. Yeah, they have something called a comb tooth at mm-hmm. the bottom, and they use that to groom their fur. Why do they Why do they need teeth to groom their fur? Well, because it's important to look good as a lemur. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be presentable. Uh, no, it's just one of those weird adaptations that we have in Madagascar primates that we don't see in other primates. Sure. Um, so it's just a way of grooming yourself, really. They're beautiful. The rings on the tails of, of, of the ring-tailed lemur are more distinct than I think I was expecting. They are. Do you think they look quite cat-like? There's definitely a sort of... The ears are a bit feline. Yeah. We had a sort of half-Persian, half-tabby cat as a, as a kid oh. called Bandit. Our cats were called Smoking the Bandit. And Bandit had a very fluffy tail. So, so what are they eating? There's some corn on the cob up there? Corn on the cob, that's a favourite. Uh, sweet potato is another favourite of theirs. So they're on a, a no-fruit diet because okay. um, our Western fruit is very, very sugary. Sure. So even though they would be eating fruit out in Madagascar, it's not the same sugar level as our fruit from the supermarkets. So. That lemur just jumped about 12 feet. Yes. And this little guy just bounced sideways as well, so they're just as happy on the ground as they are up in the trees. That one just had a poo. That was great. Performing for us. That's the noise of a lemur eating. <laughs> That's really cute. I mean, it's not cute. This is scientific research. That is the noise of a lemur eating beetroot. Um, this is like the strangest sort of BBC sound department recording technique you've ever heard. Got some sunbathing action going on there. That, he's he's so got his whole groin out there. Yeah, that's classic lemur sunning behaviour where they're literally basking in the sun. It's a little bit like a sort of squat posture. It's laying back, letting the white fur on the belly absorb all the heat. Uh-huh. And then if it's cold, conversely, they'll be bundled up a big pile of lemurs and it's difficult to tell how many you've got unless you can sort of count their tails. Sure. They're both doing it. That This guy's sunning over here now. Yeah. I mean, it's... I won't lie, it's quite windy and cold, so I don't blame them for, for grabbing the rays when they can. You can see on this guy here as well, he's got his uh, scent marking on his wrist. Can you see oh, that sort little of black bit? Black, yeah. So what they do, um, they can rub their forearms around the wrist area onto things to make them smell. And that'll be how they sort of 
mark their territories. And so that's the scent gland on there, is Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it's ever a good idea to stand under a lemur. There's the one over my head. So he's in his box over there. I can see why you're fascinated by them. They've all, they all seem to have quite distinct personalities. They do, yeah. So there's definitely a dominance hierarchy. Um, ring-tailed lemurs have female dominance. So mm-hmm. you'll have one dominant female and then her offspring will... Uh, sort of take on that dominance and then you'll have the males at the bottom of the pecking order so what what genders have we got here how many i think we've got uh they're mostly females and uh-huh. then one very low-ranking male they're gorgeous they're absolutely great Ooh. is there interspecial <laughs> rivalry i think the ringtails definitely own this enclosure and then the mongoose lemurs just get the leftovers. They look like they're meditating. They the do. They look very calm. They've got a sort of karmic Buddha-like quality. That's me doing yoga right there. <laughs> oh, hello. How was I? I got a tail in the face a moment ago. Oh, out of the way. I'm not asking anything. I'm just looking at the lemurs now. <laughs> this is bad radio, David. This is very bad radio. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't great sounding, but that was a lemur grabbing the microphone. I mean, the colour of this windsock that we've got on the, on the microphone is basically the same colour as the lemurs. Um, it is. They're probably very confused why you're holding... Oh, I forgot that <laughs> ...holding a lemur with a dictaphone up its bum. <laughs> you can get all kinds of uh, quality sounds by doing that. That's it, eaten, the sun's going in. They're mad. It's so serene, isn't it? It's like... Yes. Soak in that tiny, tiny bit of British sunshine. <laughs> it, it just shows you how they can adapt from a life... In Madagascar, in Madagascar to, to the Bristol. rainy... Yeah. So are they fluffier now than they would be in Madagascar? Do they like... In the way that animals get thicker coats if it's cold yeah or... I don't know well there might be an aspect of pilo erection going on mm-hmm. where they're just puffing their hair up and it's standing on end sure what are the key features that make lemurs different to, to other monkeys other primates well so they're prosimian primates which means they've developed on their... so uh, that we think of them as being very ancestral mm-hmm. so there's there's a misconception that they're very basic primates Um, They're not as evolved as other primates, but that's not true. It's just that they've evolved very differently. They've gone off on a different evolutionary path. Um, So they have a wet nose, so their sense of smell is very good. If you ever see an animal that has a wet nose and a long nose, that means that they rely on their sense of smell a lot. Um, Forward-facing eyes, so um, that can usually indicate that animals are not predated on which again is true of madagascan primates they don't tend to have predators out there apart from probably humans sure ring-tailed lemurs are quite adaptable so they're very good at adapting to different habitats whereas other lemurs aren't very good at that and they tend to live in very specific habitat types 
So if we were to try and reintroduce lemurs from zoos, ring-tailed lemurs would be a good bet. Sure. What would they eat in the wild? They're very good at eating everything. So um, roots, tubers, nuts, seeds, fruit, grasses, um, anything and everything, really. Yeah, I've got a tail in the face again, then. Their fangs are kind of incredible, aren't they? I'm half expecting them to do a pull on me as they walk over my head on those ropes. And I'm quite surprised by the fact that I kind of don't mind. It'd be like a trophy to take home. They, they seem to have had enough sun now. They're heading back off towards their enclosure. Yeah, probably the wind. Yeah. If they want to borrow the windsock on this microphone, they're more than welcome. Make it quite a nice hat, like the, the household cavalry wear. It's not bearskin, though, fortunately. Hello, you. Do you want to say anything to our listeners? Do you want to do an impression of what they actually sound like? And we can pretend it's just them. <laughs> could use lemurs as a sundial yes every garden should have one every garden should have a lemur although side note lemurs do not make good pets why do they not make good pets well no primate should be kept as a pet they're very bad pets aggressive difficult to look after them so does that extend to humans yes (laughs) (laughs)